Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. In this episode, we're going to introduce you to a very compelling ghost story. It does not take place on a deserted road, in a cemetery, or an old building. No, this ghost story takes place at 35,000 feet. It is the compelling story of a ghostly pilot and his engineer being seen by passengers and crews on numerous commercial jetliners. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades in December of 1972. The aircraft was traveling from New York to Miami. It was the first fatal crash involving not only the Lockheed TriStar, but a wide-body aircraft of any type. Horribly, the accident resulted in the deaths of 101 occupants, including Captain Robert Bob Loft and flight engineer Donald Don Repo. But how did these ghosts end up on other flights? And why are these some of the most compelling ghostly encounters ever? Well, before we dive into the story, here's a quick reminder to check out the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. Every day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to explore. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film, TV, and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Oh, and if you have the Alexa app, you can easily listen to our episodes by simply saying, Alexa, play the Paranormal Factor podcast. Now, on to our episode. In 2020, a passenger related a scary encounter on a night flight to Miami. He told his story as follows. So here's what happened. I was sitting in a window seat in coach with nobody next to me. There was one person behind me sprawled out and fast asleep. Nobody was sitting in front of me. Across the aisle, also seated in a window seat, was one old woman who was reading a book with the help of the overhead light. Well, as you can imagine, the plane itself was dark because the cabin crew had dimmed the lighting so passengers could sleep. There was no turbulence either, just the sound of the engines humming. It must have been around 5 a.m. when the ghost appeared. I had been following the flight's progress on the seatback screen in front of me, and I was aware that we were just entering the vast Florida Everglades. Feeling tired, I closed my eyes for a moment. At some point, I don't know how long, I sensed the presence of someone next to me. There's no way to explain that sensation. You know what I mean. You know it when it happens. At any rate, I decided to open my eyes again. When I looked to my left, I saw someone was occupying the aisle seat. Remember, for the entire flight, nobody was sitting there. Well, not wanting to be rude, I said hello to my new seatmate. He was a male in his late 40s or early 50s, and he appeared to have some type of uniform on with insignia that indicated he was a pilot. He also had on a pilot's jacket that clearly read Eastern Airlines. When I said hello, he nodded back. He then leaned over to look outside of my window, twisting his body in such a way that I could make out an ID badge. 
it clearly showed the name Robert Loft. Following his lead, I decided to look at the window as well. All I could really see was pitch darkness, which is typical when you fly over the Everglades. When I turned around to look at the pilot again, he was gone. I mean, there was no trace of him. A little confused, I unbuckled my seatbelt and stood up, hoping to see if he had moved to another seat, but he was nowhere. Well, needless to say, I was utterly freaked out. The passenger's encounter was just the continuation of a long line of sightings of ghosts connected with a tragic air crash that occurred over 50 years ago. And we're going to share those sightings with you. But first, we need to go back to that fatal evening in 1972 when an Eastern Airlines jetliner horrifically ended the lives of over 100 people. It was the Christmas holidays, 1972, and passengers and crew aboard Eastern Airlines Flight 401 were making the relatively short journey between New York and Miami. They would never arrive at their destination. This tragic air crash was the most deadly ever to have occurred in the United States at the time, and it generated heartbreaking stories of loss, but also of heroism. And it would produce a ghost story that has never really been explained to this day. The aircraft assigned to Eastern Airlines Flight 401 that December 29th was an L-1011 from Lockheed, often referred to as a whisper liner due to its quiet engines. It had been cleared for a 9 p.m. departure from New York's JFK Airport to Miami with Captain Robert Loft at the helm and Albert John Stockstill, a former Air Force aviator, as his co-pilot. Also on board were 25-year Eastern Airlines veteran Donald Repo as engineer and second officer, maintenance specialist Angelo Donadio, and Warren Terry, who was off-duty but hitching a ride to return from a duty assignment. The aircraft was under the command of Captain Loft, an expert navigator rated 50th in seniority at Eastern. Loft had been with the company for over 32 years with a total of over 29,000 flight hours. His flight crew were all experienced veterans. They were top-notch and knew the ins and outs of commanding a plane of this size. In other words, the flight was in extremely capable hands from a crew perspective. The manifest listed 153 passengers, but there were in fact 163 on board, as well as the close-knit captain crew that included 25-year-old Beverly Raposo and her colleague Mercedes Mercy Ruiz. So, Flight 401 departed JFK Airport in New York on Friday, December 29, 1972 at 9.20 p.m. with 163 passengers and 13 crew members on board. The flight was uneventful and had crossed the Palmetto Expressway as it cruised over West Palm Beach to Miami, with the captain already having told his passengers the weather in the city as he made preparations to land. The flight was routine until 11.32 p.m. when the plane began its approach into Miami International Airport. It was then that a problem arose in the cockpit. Stockstill voiced his concern that a light had not come on to show the landing gear in the plane's nose was lowered as it should be. Loft tried again to lower it, but nothing had apparently happened. So the crew made a U-turn and told air traffic controllers they would circle again as they attempted to ensure the landing gear was correctly lowered. They put the aircraft on autopilot and Repo climbed down into the avionics bay, a space beneath the flight deck, to see if he could personally check what was going on. Meanwhile, the others struggled with the cockpit display to see if the fault lay with one of its tiny light bulbs. Suddenly, the cockpit voice recorder captured a chilling phrase from Stockstill. We did something to the altitude. 
The plane should have been at 2,000 feet, but it had somehow dropped dramatically. A moment later, the voice recorder captured Loft's voice. Hey, what's happening here? The phrase would be the last communication to come from Flight 401. At 11.43 p.m., Miami Air Traffic Control got a message from another aircraft to say they had seen an explosion close by. Flight 401 had crashed in the Everglades at 227 miles per hour, cartwheeling into the swampy water after the left wingtip hit the ground first. The plane broke up into several sections upon impact and traveled more than a third of a mile before finally coming to a halt. First on the scene was a local man named Robert Marquis, who had been hunting frogs with a friend on an airboat when he saw an orange fireball and knew instantly he was witnessing a plane crash. He turned his watercraft and swung towards the crash site, as did the Coast Guard on a nearby helicopter. Meanwhile, flight attendant Beverly Raposa had survived the crash and found herself flung into the mud of the Everglades. In a brave display of professionalism, she gathered other survivors around her and shouted for more to come toward the sound of her voice. After realizing she was covered in jet fuel and there was more fuel in the area, she cautioned everyone not to strike matches for light. To calm other survivors, she began singing, singing Christmas carols in an attempt to keep their spirits up. Eight of the ten flight attendants survived the crash. Despite their own injuries, they were credited with helping other survivors and drawing the rescue team's attention, as flashlights were not part of the standard equipment on commercial airlines at the time. The Coast Guard's helicopter tracked down the survivors after Mr. Marquis swung his lamp around to attract attention, and rescue vehicles began to arrive via a flood control levee. The area, an inhospitable and incredibly inaccessible place, proved to be a logistical nightmare for rescue workers. The swamp and its wildlife consumed the dead and living alike. Alligators came out in mass to feed, snakes attacked rescue workers, and organisms in the swamp infected wounds, all causing irreparable damage. Sadly, many drowned in the water of the Everglades before rescuers could reach them. 75 survived the crash, 67 of the 163 passengers and the eight attendants. The eventual death toll would be 103, with some succumbing to their wounds after the event. Co-pilot Stockstill was killed on impact, and Captain Loft died in the wreckage of the flight deck. Repo survived the initial crash, but died later at the hospital. Technical officer Donadio, who was in the avionics bay with Repo when the plane went down, survived. Two of the ten flight attendants also perished. Most of the passengers who died in the crash were in the midsection of the aircraft. Crashing into the Everglades, much of the force of impact was absorbed. The mud from the swamp helped prevent injured passengers from bleeding out, though it also caused infections in many of the survivors. So what happened? Investigators quickly realized the confusion in the cockpit over the landing gear light must have been enough to distract the pilots and meant an altitude warning chime was not heard. The National Transportation Safety Board theorized the pilot may have bumped the autopilot to off, beginning the slow descent that resulted in the crash. Visually, since it was nighttime and the aircraft was flying over the darkened terrain of the Everglades, no ground lights or other visual signs indicated the TriStar was slowly descending, and the pilots realized it too late. It crashed on the ground within four minutes. Therefore, the crash was likely due to the pilot error. 
It was widely reported that several parts of the aircraft were salvaged from the crash site and returned to the manufacturer to be used again on other L-1011s. The repurposed parts went back to the fleet. Well, soon after, stories began to emerge that passengers and crew members on other eastern flights, now with those salvaged parts on them, were being visited by some of those who had died in the crash of Flight 401. After the massive rescue and recovery mission was completed, former Eastern Airlines personnel alleged the airline made an effort to salvage some of the serviceable remains of the aircraft. These would end up being repurposed as backup or replacement parts for other jets in the Eastern Airlines inventory. But it did not take long after repurposed parts were installed that strange and eerie paranormal activity began to occur on those particular aircraft. Not long after the devastating crash, stories began to emerge in the Eastern Airlines community of unexplained encounters with some of the crew from Flight 401. Flight crews and passengers on other similar aircraft in the Eastern Airlines fleet came forward with stories of sightings of pilot Bob Loft and engineer Don Repo. At JFK Airport in 1973, an Eastern Airlines TriStar was boarding for its flight down to Miami. Traveling that morning was one of the airline's vice presidents. As a VIP passenger, he was allowed onto the aircraft first, and he made his way to the first-class cabin. As he moved toward his seat, he noticed a company captain in full uniform and went over to have a chat. During the ensuing conversation, he suddenly realized he was speaking to Bob Loft. The apparition quickly disappeared, and the vice president rushed off to find a crew member, terrified that it could be an omen that something would happen to this particular aircraft. A search of the plane was carried out before any other passengers boarded, but there was no sign of the mysterious captain. A few months later, back at JFK, a crew boarding the same aircraft were surprised to see Loft already sitting in the flight deck. They apparently chatted to the ghost, not realizing who he was, before he vanished right before their eyes. The crew was so shaken that the flight had to be canceled. Another flight was undergoing pre-flight checks when Bob Loft was spotted wandering around the undercarriage of the aircraft. Loft even spoke to the ground crew, insisting no checks were required as he had already done them. The pilot of this flight was apparently so unnerved by all of this that he also canceled the flight. Meanwhile, a flight attendant on a New York to Miami flight, the very route of the December 1972 crash, opened an overhead locker to find Bob's face peering out at him. At first, witnesses reported seeing the apparition standing in the aisles, occupying the galley and cockpit. At one point during a flight, however, a female passenger asked about the quiet man in uniform next to her. When the flight attendant arrived to ask this man a question, he disappeared in front of both of them. The inquiring woman was terrified, but further reports were more frightening, taking on a much more sinister overtone, at least in the eyes of some witnesses involved. One witness, a female passenger, described an ashen-looking person sitting in one of the seats. She described him as dazed and unresponsive. She was so worried about his appearance that she summoned an attendant to investigate further. The man vanished before their very eyes and those of several other passengers. The original witness was so distressed that several of the cabin crew had to forcibly restrain her. It took a while, but the female passenger eventually calmed down. She was shown 
photos of several of the flight staff, and she picked out the dead engineer, Don Repo. Captain Bob Loft is often tagged as the main subject of this haunting, but the truth is, Don Repo is far more active and more regularly witnessed. One time, a working flight attendant insisted that she saw an engineer working to repair an oven. When word of this reached the only engineer on board of that particular flight, he denied ever fixing the oven and went as far to say that it didn't even need fixing in the first place. As in other reports, the flight attendant selected Repo's photo out of several that were shown to her. During a flight from Atlanta to Miami aboard N318, the flight deck crew were enjoying their meal as they cruised at 39,000 feet. Suddenly, there was a loud knocking coming from the hellhole, a hatch on the floor giving access to avionics equipment below the cockpit. Well, by now, the ghostly stories had been circulating around the company, and the crew were reluctant to look. But the knocking continued, and as the flight engineer opened the hatch, he was horrified to see the face of Repo staring back at him, and then shocked as Repo disappeared before his very eyes. Terrifyingly, this was where the ghostly engineer had been when Flight 401 had crashed. Undeterred, allegedly the pilot investigated further and did find a problem that may have caused a serious accident if it had gone unnoticed. An attendant of TriStar 318 was shocked to see Repo looking back at her from the glass of the galley oven. She called other members of the cabin crew to confirm the sighting. The flight engineer on duty during this flight was a personal friend of Repo and instantly recognized the face as that of his deceased friend. According to all present, Repo then warned them about a fire on board. At the time, not much notice was taken. Later, during the return flight, though, problems with the engine all stemmed from a fire that no one knew about. The final leg of the flight was canceled as a result of this fire. On another day, a crew was in the cockpit of an aircraft when they were said to have seen Don sitting with them. He warned them of a faulty electrical circuit, which was later found and replaced. On the L-1011, flight engineers would usually arrive at the aircraft before the other crew to carry out their pre-flight checks. During one occasion, a flight engineer was stunned to see an Eastern Airlines second officer already sitting in his seat. He immediately recognized him as Don Repo, and he recounted the apparition said to him, You don't need to worry about this pre-flight. I've already done it, before disappearing. Some weeks later, another captain was checking the instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta. Staring him right in the face was the unmistakable outline of Repo's face. The captain claimed he distinctly heard the words, There will never be another crash on an L-1011. We will not let it happen. And it wasn't just flight crews who saw the ghostly apparitions. On one occasion, several caterers loading N318 for its next flight were seen rushing off the jet, and they refused to get back on. When asked why, they all stated that they had seen a flight engineer standing in the forward galley who then vanished. While plenty of ghostly encounters have occurred on planes, as we've heard, they're not the only source of ghost sightings involving the dead of Flight 401. The location of the crash itself is also considered the site of a paranormal haunting due to reports from the initial search and recovery. Teams in John boats swore they heard whimpering and screaming around the swampy crash site well after crash recovery was completed. But when they searched in those areas, there was no one to be found. One searcher had the scary experience of seeing a pale, eyeless body floating just beneath the still water. 
He turned to tell his colleagues about the find, and when he turned back to the same spot, it was gone. For months, hunters, poachers, and wildlife enthusiasts started reporting strange, unearthly sights and encounters around the crash site. I was just frog-gigging when a face looked up at me from below the water, a woman's face screaming up. Spooked me silly. Never been back to that place since that moment. Around here, we do our best to avoid that area, said one local witness. For months and years after the crash, the area became a hotbed of supernatural activity. Marfa-like lights started popping up around the swamp in the area of the crash. Spirits peered from the gloom into the stunned eyes of hunters. Things swam below the surface of the swamp, things dressed in rags and tattered clothes. To this day, airboat captains take passengers on night tours of this area. They tell of passengers hearing and seeing things for themselves, such as phantom faces and moaning noises. So if you tour this location, you might ask the airboat captains if they will take you to the area. Eerily, nearly 25 years after the 401 crash, a second fatal crash would occur nearby. Value Jet Flight 592 crashed just two miles north of the crash site of Flight 401 in May of 1996, killing all 110 people on board. While a marker and memorial stands at that location, to date, there is no permanent memorial marking the site of the crash of Flight 401. The ghosts of Eastern Flight 401 were reportedly seen in 2021 as well, so sightings certainly do continue. All in all, there were more than 20 incidents in which people reported having seen ghostly apparitions of dead Flight 401 crew members. Keen to shut down the paranormal stories, Eastern Airlines is said to have removed all logbooks in which ghost sightings were recorded and warned employees who perpetuated the stories they could face dismissal. And the airline was not the only one looking to stop the rumors of ghosts haunting the planes. Soon, the skeptics would take aim at the alleged sightings as well. According to Robert J. Serling's 1980 book, From the Captain to the Colonel, An Informal History of Eastern Airlines, the claim that wreckage from Flight 401 was installed and later removed from other Eastern aircraft was false. Serling further states in his book, no Eastern employees had ever claimed to have seen or believed in the alleged ghost sightings. There was never anything to it. Jim Ashlock, who ran public relations for Eastern Airlines from 1966 until it closed in 1991, stated in 1997, he said authors of bestsellers made the whole thing up. He said Eastern hid no logs, destroyed no documents, and intimidated no witnesses. Skeptic Brian Dunning claims the origin for the ghost sighting was a joke made by an Eastern Airlines captain. After an emergency landing in which he teased that he thought Don Repo's ghost must be on the plane. Dunning also cast out on the repurposed plane parts story. Not a single usable part was salvaged from the wreckage, and not a single component that crashed with Flight 401 was ever installed in another aircraft. This crux of the story was completely made up out of whole cloth. In fact, do a Google image search for Flight 401 wreckage, and you'll see at a glance that the aircraft was completely destroyed. The idea that a large, boxy, relatively delicate component like an oven or an elevator could have survived undamaged is immediately ludicrous at face value. According to some skeptics, it is also possible 
the collective trauma from having so many co-workers and friends die caused Eastern Airlines crew members to have shared hallucinations or delusions. Yet, it is strange that the eyewitnesses telling their ghost stories would all be so consistent with one another if this was the case. And none of the alleged ghost sightings have ever been successfully refuted. Some still insist salvage parts were behind the sightings of Captain Loft and his dead colleagues months after the loss of Flight 401, and that Eastern Airlines was forced to remove them from the other planes to stop the apparitions reappearing and allow them to rest in peace. Perhaps the ghosts of Don Repo and Bob Loft were intertwined with the parts of the wreckage of Flight 401, and when those parts were put in another plane, they were able to connect with the living through those repurposed parts. Regardless, there have been few reports of apparitions since 1974, when parts were supposedly removed from the aircraft they had been repurposed to, although there have been a few sightings since then. Or maybe Loft and Repo had finally decided it was time to hang up their uniforms for the final time. The Flight Safety Foundation did a review of accounts of ghost sightings after the crash. They concluded, The reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. While Eastern Airlines publicly denied their planes were haunted, they reportedly removed all the salvage parts from their L-1011 fleet. An original floorboard from Flight 401 remains in the archives at History Miami in South Florida, and pieces of Flight 401's wreckage can also be found in Ed and Lorraine Warren's occult museum. Following the crash, Beverly Raposa was praised for her valor. She worked only briefly as a flight attendant. She left Eastern and worked in the travel agency industry. Raposa doesn't mind flying. I still love to fly. I get on planes and fall asleep like a baby. I consider the survivors 75 miracles. That was an unsurvivable crash, but we made it out, she said. Trudy Smith did not return to flying. They gave us six months off, and then we were expected to be over it, she says. She went into crew scheduling and still suffers back pains. She hasn't been on an airplane in years. Mercy Ruiz of West Miami-Dade still has aches and pains, but returned to flying with Eastern. She put in 11 more years with United before retiring. Today, she still has the small Eastern Airlines-issued cream-colored suitcase she carried the night of the crash. Inside was a treasure, her camera, with shots of the crew taken that day. I've tried to throw the suitcase away many times, but something always holds me back. It's like it's a charm, she said. It survived that night, just like me. Eerily, the film from Ruiz's camera, when developed, had among its photos one taken of the flight attendants mere hours before takeoff. The photo shows the women laughing and cutting up. Two of the women are seen being pranked. Ruiz puts up fingers, devil horns, behind the head of one attendant. Another woman jokingly chokes the flight attendant in front of her. Of the nine crew women on the flight, and in that photo, it was only those two who did not survive. Postscript. The crash of Flight 401 highlighted a number of deficiencies in flight safety that thankfully changed for the better air safety standards and were soon implemented at both Eastern Airlines and in the industry. Flashlights became part of the standard equipment. Flight attendants now have shoulder harnesses, whether their seats face forward or backward. The acoustic alerts given to pilots to advise them of changes to the autopilot settings 
were dramatically improved, and groundwork was laid for what later became the science of cockpit resource management, which aims to minimize human error by organizing communication, leadership, and decision-making in the cockpit. While we may not know if the ghost stories were real, it was the efforts of the real people involved who ended safety flaws and reduced the chances of the same type of accident happening again. To this day, more than five decades later, the survivors mark each December 29th, and some still gather at the crash site to remember those who were lost. Well, in our next episode, a special shortened edition of the show, we're going to introduce you to a very strange case involving the death of a man, a seemingly cursed man. In April 1991, a man was found dead in his Seattle apartment after a week of telling friends that something was trying to kill him. Did he literally scare himself to death? Or was his passing the result of a terrifying curse? A curse allegedly put on him by a witch. Well, we'll try and find out when we investigate the unusual death of Christopher Case. Next time, right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. That's right, it's quiz time, folks, and here we go. What was the key defining characteristic of Mothman? Was it A, large white antennae, B, short bat wings, C, large red eyes, or D, large clawed feet? Once again, what was the key defining characteristic of Mothman? Was it large white antennae, short bat wings, large red eyes, or large clawed feet? And the answer is... C. Large Red Eyes The town of Mount Pleasant, West Virginia is known for a bipedal humanoid moth-like creature with glowing red eyes. An astonishing creature by all accounts. In November 1966, eerie things began to occur in the small township. Strange lights in the sky and a flying red-eyed creature called Mothman who would change the small West Virginia town forever. On November 15, 1966, Two young couples from Point Pleasant told police they had seen a large white creature whose large eyes glowed red. It was described by the eyewitnesses as a slender, muscular man about seven feet tall with white wings that had an almost hypnotic effect due to its eyes. In the headlights, those giant eyes shone an even brighter red. Well, as you can imagine, panic set in. The car's driver sped away toward town, but the creature followed, making a loud screeching sound. According to those first eyewitness accounts, the thing rose up like a helicopter and excelled in gliding. It was easily keeping pace even as the car reached 100 miles an hour. It flew right above the car, its wingtips dipping below window level and occasionally whacking into the sides of the car, and it pursued them as far as the Point Pleasant city limits. Well, if you'd like to learn more about the infamous Mothman, check out Season 3, Episode 17, right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, 
please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.